Good day and welcome to episode four of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital, where we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. This episode was recorded on November 14th, 2019. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about some of the impacts of the big brokerage houses like Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, and Interactive Brokers cutting trading commissions to zero. And I want to dig into that later on with a segment on something called direct indexing that I think may really take off as a result of some of these changes. But before we get into that, uh, Steve has some thoughts he wants to share on the Chinese yuan and a potential trend change he's, uh, he's picking up related to the CNY. Yeah, Bryce, that's interesting. Um, you, you know, we, we, we have a relationship uh, that we see in our, in our data library between uh, the level of the Chinese yuan and uh, China required reserve ratio. And, you know, structurally that uh, required reserve ratio has been coming down for the last five years, which is, uh, has been associated with, you know, a roughly 10% devaluation in, in, in the Chinese yuan over the last five years. Um, and that's really picked up pace in uh, in the last 18 months, as, as the trade war has escalated, uh, China's taken uh, you know the opportunity to cut the reserve requirement um, several more times, and so you know right now we see a level um, indicated by the reserve requirement of roughly around 725 um, uh, to, to the U.S. dollar, and so you know they actually give us three different uh, required reserve ratios. You know, one for for major banks, one for smaller banks, and then one for uh, for commercial banks. And interestingly, if we look at just over the last 18 months, while you know, you've had um, five cuts to, uh, to major banks in April 18, July 18, October 18, January 19, and September 19, you've actually had three more cuts for your rural banks. Um, all those cuts that I just mentioned, and then also added in uh, May 2019, June 2019, and September 2019, to the point where now the reserve requirement on rural banks is all the way down to um, seven and a half percent. Again, relative to uh, major major city banks at 13 percent, and so all of this, you know, this uh, uh, changes in the reserve requirement um, again tend to be correlated to the Chinese yuan, and so um, uh, what we've seen uh, for last week is an inflection point in the yuan where um, it made a low on November the 7th at 698 um, and has recently backed up to uh, to 702. And I think that um, uh, there's lots of consequences that we see when when we see trend changes in uh, in the Chinese yuan. And, and one of the more important trend changes um, that we see is the relative performance between uh, between stocks and bonds. And so, you know, just looking back at this year, you know, we had a pretty good drawdown uh, in May and another one in, uh, in, in, in August. And so um, the low, if I, if I look at the, um, the, the SPY ETF relative to the TLT ETF, uh, you know, that fell about, uh, that relative uh, performance fell by about 13% into a low on June 3rd of 2019, um, just a week later on, on June 10th, uh, the Chinese yuan made a low. And then similarly in August, um, we had another drawdown in August, 
um, the relative performance of the SPY, the SPY underperformed by about 16% into a low on August 14th of 2019 this year. And, and that's been really the, the last three months since that uh, August 14th low. Um, stocks have outperformed, uh, stocks have outperformed bonds by, by a pretty good margin. But we um, appear to have hit an inflection point. Well, uh, as I just indicated, the Chinese yuan peaked uh, on November the 7th. Um, a day later, on November the 8th, we see the relative performance of the SPY to the TLT um, having peaked, and we're actually now down 2.3% uh, from the high. So again, the point is that uh, when we've seen similar devaluations of the yuan um, so far this year, they've been highly correlated to double-digit outperformance of, of, uh, of bonds over stocks. And so when we decompose the bond, um, we can really see that um, there's a couple components that are, that are highly impacted by, by Chinese devaluation. And, and one of them is the break-even inflation component. So, you know, if we look back at, at the May episode of devaluation, break-even inflation went from about 196 to about 162 uh, in its low in June. It worked its way back up to 1.8% to in July, and then fell from 1.8 all the way down to 1.47% in, in early October. Um, it climbed back to 1.73% um, last week, and again, it peaked on, on, on November the 8th as well, and, and we've since retreated by about 10 basis, point, uh, 10 basis points, and break-even inflation is back to 1.63% um, as the Chinese yuan has rolled over. So that, that's one avenue. The other avenue is, is through the term premium. So the term premium uh, embedded in 10-year Treasury bonds uh, made a low of negative 1.29% on uh, August 28th uh, of 2019. And uh, just, you know, a few days later, uh, again on, on uh, September the 3rd, the Chinese yuan uh, made its low at 718. And then you've had a move since that, that, that carried all the way up to um, taking term premiums all the way up to negative 81 basis points on November the 8th. Uh, again, keeping in mind the Chinese yuan uh, peaked on November the 7th. So um, we're seeing an inflection point in, uh, in, in both break-even inflation and the term premium component. If I, if I zoom the lens out a little bit and look over the last five years, uh, we can see the relationship a, a little more strongly insofar as that. In 2015, the term premium on 10-year on U.S. bonds was around 50 basis points when the Chinese yuan was around 620. And so, you know, this year, uh, the term premium has averaged around negative 1%, while the Chinese yuan has averaged around um, 6.9. So, you know, uh, term premium has come down by you know, a percent and a half um, in the time frame when the Chinese yuan has devalued by about uh, uh, 10%. And if we, if we carve up that term premium into, you know, its individual components, there's the inflation risk premium, which, which tends to track oil prices. And then there's the real rate risk premium, um, which tends to be the dominant share uh, of the term premium. And here again, um, we see a very tight fit with the Chinese yuan. So the real rate risk premium uh, made a low of negative uh, 1% on August 29th uh, of, of uh, 2019. Um, again, just a few days before the, the September 3rd low uh, on the Chinese yuan at, at 7.18. And then on November 8th, uh, about a week ago, the real rate risk premium um, was negative 55 basis points. 
um, and has since you know fallen back to to negative 62 basis points um, along with the um, along with the devaluation of the one and, and similarly over the last five years um, we see the same association that the real rate risk premium component of 10-year treasury bonds was really around 60 to 75 basis points in in 2015 when the one was at, at 6.2 um, and, and this year it's averaged, you know, somewhere between negative 50 and 100 basis points um, when the yuan has, is uh, uh, about 10% cheaper in the 690 to 7 range. So, um, you know, we, we made, uh, um, I made a little indicator, uh, a leading indicator, um, uh, decomposing 10-year uh, uh, treasury bonds. And so if we look at the um, 10-year treasury embedded growth expectation, which is basically tips yields minus the term premium, or basically adding the term premium since the term premium is negative. Um, so, so, so that gives us a proxy for, for what embedded um, US growth expectations are. Um, and, and they peaked at 1.27% uh, on September 27th, 2019. They've retraced all the way back down to 1.01% as of today. Um, and that actually took out the low that we saw um, uh, in the summer um, where they got down as low as 1.03%. Um, but the, the major point to emphasize here is that if I lag the Chinese yuan by about 45 days, it's got a really high correlation to, uh, to, to treasury embedded growth expectations. And so um, that relationship suggests that, you know, over the next 45 days, we're going to see the Chinese yuan work its way back down to, uh, uh, to the 720 range, um, uh, again, as we suggested earlier. And so um, in addition to that having consequences for asset allocation, um, uh, devaluation of the yuan favoring uh, bonds over stocks in the United States. Um, it also is a contributor to equity volatility. Uh, one more reason to uh, uh, you know, think about uh, holding some, some longer duration bonds in one's portfolio. Uh, if we go back this year, you know, both of the spikes and the VIX that we saw, um, the, the Chicago Board Option, Option Exchange Volatility Index, um, short, short name, the, the VIX, which tells us the implied volatility of, of, um, of S&P stocks. So in the May devaluation period, the VIX you know, made a low of 12.01% on April the 12th, and it spiked over 20, um, uh, it spiked to 21 in, um, in May. Then it made a, the VIX again made a low on July 24th at 12.07%, and it spiked to 25 in August in, in that drawdown, in, in that devaluation period. And so recently here, um, again, on November the 8th, the VIX made a low at 12.07% and has since increased to 13.24%. So all of this suggests that about a week ago, um, we saw a trend change in the relative performance of stocks and bonds, um, largely a function of the trend change in, in the Chinese yuan. And the, 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 the somewhat concerning part of that is that um, in addition to the trend change, we saw some data come out um, overnight that suggests that, you know, the Chinese economy is, is still under pressure and, um, and needs the benefit of, you know, whatever stimulus that, that it can provide. And so we kind of got a, a slew of data points. Um, one, industrial production, um, you know, year over year in, uh, in October, it came in at 4.7%. Expectations were for 5.4% growth. We got retail sales uh, for October. They came in at 7.2%. Expectations were for 7.8%. Uh, 
And then we got fixed asset, uh, fixed asset investment. Um, and again, on a year over year basis in October, it was supposed to come in at 5.4% uh, and it ended, uh, ended up coming in at 5.2%. So um, to say that we have seen um, uh, an inflection point in, in economic growth coming out of China, I think would, would, would not be an accurate statement at this point. We continue to see um, hard data um, deteriorate. And we see that uh, still spilling into the United States in addition to the fact that the Atlanta Fed um, GDP now, uh, uh, now cast for the fourth quarter is hovering around 1%. Now, you know, we got data earlier in the week um, from the OECD, their leading indicator, um, uh, uh, the latest reading was under 99. And so I think most people are aware of in this decade long economic expansion that we've had three little mini cycles um, uh, with troughs in, in 2011, 2015. And, and I think most were looking for uh, uh, you know, a trough in, in economic activity uh, in, in the first quarter of, of next year. And so it's concerning to see that uh, the, uh, the U.S. leading economic indicator amplitude adjusted um, fell to 98.76 at the last reading. Uh, and that takes out, you know, the 99.09 .09 reading that we saw in 2015 and the 99.13 reading that we saw in 2011. So um, for, for, for those that, um, that, um, uh, that, that, that have the ability to, to pivot with the market, it, it sure looks to us like um, we're moving into, you know, another phase, uh, closing out the year on, on possibly a, a risk-off tone where the Chinese yuan uh, devalues in the midst of, uh, um, you know, trade tensions continuing to, to, to simmer. Um, and that leads to uh, an increase in equity volatility. Um, and, uh, um, you know, a bit of a scenario like we saw to close out, uh, to close out last year. So um, definitely something that, that um, you know, we thought was an important uh, development in the last week uh, to, to, alert our, to alert our listeners to, uh, especially from an asset allocation standpoint, looking at, at stock multiple bonds. Stocks have had a great year this year. It'd be, it'd be a shame to, uh, to, give, uh, to give that performance back in the last, in the last six weeks of the year. Okay. Thank you. Steve, just to just to jump in there real quick, it, it sounds like it would make sense then, given um, given that dynamic and the and the Chinese yuan, and, and maybe that we continue to see uh, weak economic data coming out of China, and indeed some out of the uh, weak economic data coming out of the U.S. That it would it would make sense then to you know keep some keep some powder dry and and even consider those long bonds um, as an interesting diversification vehicle. Um, you know, as opposed to uh, the whole world, which seems to want to embrace the cyclical uh, cyclical trade right now. Yeah, and and I, and I just closed that on a on a technical note, saying that you know, since the trough in, in, in rate several months ago, you know, it's been about sixty five days, um, and you know, we've kind of found through time that often um, after strong moves like we saw in the early part of this year with interest rates that, you know, you, you'll, you'll take a pause for 50 to 70 days and, and then begin, begin a secondary move. So, you know, uh, today we see bonds down again, another, you know, four, five, six basis points on the long end, kind of the second day in the row of that dynamic, right in that window uh, of, of about days, you know, 63, 64, 65 um, in the cycle. So, um, we, we suspect there's more to uh, more to come on that. Um, so with that, Bryce, um, you know, getting back to your 
to your to your tease at the intro about direct indexing. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the very disruptive move by Charles Schwab to cut brokerage commissions to zero on most equity trades um, and to allow for fractional share trading, which I think is an important point. Um, of course, other brokers like TD and Fidelity were, were quick to follow. Uh, on the surface, this seems like a competitive move by Schwab to take share from other uh, brokers, um, um, since Schwab relies less on commissions as a source of revenue. But far more importantly uh, to the average investor, it opens up the possibility of innovation um, in the asset management arena. One of those areas of innovation uh, is possibly direct indexing. Um, Bryce, what exactly is direct indexing? Well, that's a really good question, Steve. And I think direct indexing is, is one of those things that, that really is in its infancy. And so it's not well, uh, it's not well understood and, and information about it is not very well disseminated. So, so that's what we'll try and do here uh, with the segment. Um, so direct indexing is essentially when an investor tries to replicate the performance of an index or an ETF by holding some or all of the individual securities in that index or ETF um, in, a, in their separately managed account, in their, in their personal investment account. Um, so, so really, it's essentially building a personalized ETF within one's own investment account. So one example of this, um, you know, the, the simplest example would be trying to replicate the performance of the S&P 500 by holding um, all of the stocks in the S&P 500. Okay, uh, you could take it one step further and say, oh, you don't want to hold all the stocks in the S&P 500 because maybe you've got a, um, you know, a, a problem with a, with a couple of them. You don't agree with the products or services that they're selling. And so you would exclude those couple stocks. Um, and, and that's really how direct indexing has been used to date. Um, but the reality is the application is much more broad than that. Um, you, can, you can really hone in on, on any... Um, any area of the market that you want specific exposure to. So if you want exposure to just tech stocks, well, you can replicate um, the S&P 500 technology sector with individual securities. If you want exposure to a specialty index like the Knowledge Leaders Developed World in, uh, Index or the Knowledge Leaders uh, uh, United States Index, you could um, use direct indexing to, to essentially replicate those indexes. Um, and I think that the interesting application of direct indexing comes in when um, you don't exclude just a couple stocks and, and hold, uh, for example, um, you know, maybe there's 10 stocks you don't agree with in the S&P 500, and so you hold 490 of them. Um, that certainly is one application. I think the more practical application uh, for individual investors and, and even for institutional investors is to replicate the performance of, of a broad index or even specialty index with um, far fewer stocks that are, that are actually in that index. So in this case, you might replicate the performance of the S&P 500 by holding, say, 100 stocks in your individual uh, uh, investment account. Um, and so why, why would somebody do that as opposed to holding all of the stocks or the vast majority of the stocks? And the reason really uh, comes down to, to taxes and the ability to, um, to harvest tax losses when it makes sense to do so. So say you hold 100 stocks um, in your account, you're replicating the performance of the S&P 500. Let's call those 100 stocks bucket A. Um, that means there's 400 other stocks that you don't own in your account but those stocks are in the S&P 500, and um, we'll call those stocks uh, bucket B. So in reality, 
uh, what very often happens is the overall stock market um, could go up could go up quite significantly, but there can be a lot of dispersion of returns at the individual company level. So um, one example of this is maybe the S&P 500 is up 10% in a quarter, um, but 100 of the stocks within the S&P 500 are actually down by, by 10 to 20%. So using direct indexing, you can take advantage of that dispersion, and I'll explain how you would do that uh, right now. So. Um, so in our example of owning 100 stocks in the S&P 500, our, our bucket A, um, in a quarter in which the S&P 500 is up by about 10%, you might have 10 or 15 stocks within your, within your holdings, your bucket A holdings, that are down by more than 10%. And what you would do is you would sell those stocks and recognize a fairly significant um, tax loss, and you would simply replace those stocks with you know, several of the other 400 stocks and bucket B that are in the index, but you didn't already own. Um, and so you give yourself a self a tax loss, but you don't really impact your ability to, to track that, that index. Um, furthermore, you never really have to sell the stocks that you own that have had um, really large gains. They're still in the index. Um, you may need to adjust the weighting by offsetting some of those gains with losses, but that's fairly easy to do. Um, now, in reality, it's a little bit more complicated than, than what I just suggested. Um, if you want to replicate the S&P 500 with just 100 stocks, you have to have a special know-how um, to use uh, fairly sophisticated optimization software, and you need fairly expensive access to, to market data. Um, and to be able to effectuate tax losses um, in a timely manner, you need to be pretty constantly following the markets. So this is to say that direct, direct indexing is a really wonderful way to invest. And I think it's gonna be one of those um, really uh, uh, large areas of innovation within the money management industry. Um, but it's not practical for every um, professional investor, let alone individual investors, uh, to, to do it by themselves. Indeed, you, you need somebody with um, a fairly significant um, expertise in that um, in indexing or direct indexing in order to, to get it done. And, and Bryce, I think like, like we've talked about before, you know, it, in, in, in our experience and in, in application, it, it seems to uh, work in a most ideal setting in a, in, in a single asset class portfolio. So let's just say a, um, you keep using the S&P 500, a, a U.S. equity strategy or an international equity strategy or, you know, or, or something as of that, uh, as opposed to a, um, uh, as opposed to an asset allocation strategy. Um, do, you, do, do, do you see it that way as well, that, that the direct indexing is ideally suited at, um, at single asset classes? Yeah, I think that would make sense, Steve. And, and and maybe you know, as things go, there there there'd be opportunities to um to to you know um, bring in ETFs and and run some sort of asset allocation strategy um, along those direct indexing lines. But I think generally speaking, uh, it, it works really well when you've got a lot of stocks that you're trying to that are in your sort of selection universe um, that you're you're trying to optimize around, and so you have. Um, uh, that just gives you a lot of opportunities to uh, constantly be harvesting losses and then replacing those stocks that you sold for losses with other stocks that are in your universe. And Bryce, it seems that, you know, to answer your, your, um, to, to answer your question about whether Charles Schwab's move, um, you know, was a, 
what was a market share grab. I, I saw a headline go by I mean, a couple hours ago that um, in the last month since Schwab started their zero commission trading, um, they've opened 142,000 new trading accounts. So um, it sure seems like uh, um, uh, that has uh, served to, to bolster Charles Schwab's um, uh, profile. I believe uh, the last number I saw, they had something like 12.2 million accounts. So that's a fairly significant, um, uh, fairly significant bump that we've seen in the last month. So it, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're 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 onto something here with your direct indexing. Wow, that's very interesting. So you know, I think a, a, another question is: um, Is direct indexing really appropriate um, or a good idea for for individual investors? And um, and I think you know it's an excellent way for individual investors to invest, uh, provided they're working with uh, you know a professional with the right um, skill set and experience, and, and of course software and access to market data. Um, and and the reason is uh, you can create a portfolio of individual stocks that give you. The, exactly the exposure that you want, um, you know, just staying on the equity side, exactly the, the kind of equity exposure that you want, whether that's uh, broad market exposure like the S&P 500 or, or indeed specialty exposure, maybe that's uh, factor exposure, specific exposure to um, highly innovative companies, for example, um, and still be able to generate uh, very substantial tax losses uh, along the way that, that really, um, uh, you know, the traditional way of investing through through ETFs and, and actively managed mutual funds don't really give you that that opportunity. Um, and especially compared to, to actively managed mutual funds, direct indexing um, has, has some very uh, significant advantages. Um, so if you think of, a, of an actively managed mutual funds, uh, an actively managed mutual fund uh, stock equity fund, uh, you know, has fairly significantly uh, high turnover. Um, they might turn over 50% of the portfolio in a year. And when they do that, all of the gains that they have realized by turning over the portfolio have to then be distributed to, to the end investor who then pays um, taxes on those distributed gains. So it, you know, just to use a simple example, say the stock market was up 20% in a year and an actively managed fund also had a pretty good year and was able to, to track the performance of the market. Um, by finishing up 20%. And then let's assume that that active fund had, you know, an average level of turnover of 50%. Um, and then they realize gains worth 5% of the value of the fund, uh, which is, which is again, very typical. Um, if that 5% is taxed at the blended, call it 30% tax rate, um, the end investor would, would have a tax bill essentially equivalent to about 1%, 1.5%. Of, of her account value. Um, so that, that's a, you know, a fee, if, if you will, that is directly um, deducted from the performance um, in practical terms and after-tax terms is direct uh, deducted from the performance of, of that vehicle. So after taxes, the investor um, in that active stock fund would only have returned 18.5%. And so a different way to say that is the active fund would have needed to outperform the broad market index or their benchmark by 1.5% just to make up for the difference um, and, and those taxable gains that were distributed to that end investor. So, you know, 1.5%, you know, when you think about doing that year in and year out, um, that's a pretty tough task uh, to, to accomplish, especially when you consider, you know, some of these 
you know, world, world-class leading investors like Warren Buffett has only outperformed the S&P 500 by about 2% per year um, in, in his entire career. So um, as a direct indexer, you don't have to uh, overcome that hurdle. Instead, you actually get to realize tax losses along the way. And that's something that you can't do when you invest in ETFs, um, and certainly not something that you can do when you invest in, in actively managed mutual funds. Interesting. Very interesting, Bryce. It sounds like uh, direct indexing is a topic that, uh, that we're certainly going to come back to in, in, in subsequent uh, podcasts. Yeah, I think so, Steve. Yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be digging into direct indexing uh, much more as we go here. Well, with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor. And please come visit us at www.knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn more about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, this is Bryce Coward and Stephen Vanelli signing off.